We are getting into Revelation tonight. So Roman numeral number one, the exalted Christ's message to his seven churches, chapters one through three. In this division, Jesus Christ appeared to John in his glorified state in order to give his message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Here, Jesus established himself as the absolute authority as creator and savior of creation. This is what gives weight to his condemnation, rebuke, and encouragement to the seven churches. This division sets the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation, in which Jesus will show the churches what will begin to happen and continue to happen in the world until he comes. The coming persecution by the world against the church and the absolute judgment of Jesus Christ over the world for the rebellion will reinforce the seriousness of Jesus' rebukes and his call to them to persevere. So in these first three chapters, Christ is going to begin by revealing himself in all of his divine glory as the authoritative creator and savior of the world. And then he'll stand in the midst of them as judge. With this authority, he will rebuke them and encourage them, rebuke them for their sins and their falling away from him as the God and man. And then he will also encourage those for staying faithful to him and encourage those that they repent and come back to him. He will vindicate them one day. This sets the stage for when he continues in the revelation to reveal to them how he's going to judge the world for their sins. It will give great weight to his rebukes and his encouragement because the focus of the revelation is his judgment for sin and his coming redemption for humanity. Now, in this division, there are two sections. And the first section is letter A, John's vision of Christ, chapter 1. In this section, Jesus appears to John in a metaphorical and glorified state. It is metaphorical in that Jesus has fiery eyes with a sword coming out of his mouth. This is his glorified state, for it is clear from this scene that Jesus is absolutely powerful and emanates a great deal of power compared to how he first came as a humble man in his earthly life and ministry. John introduces a lot of imagery and concepts, the greater significance of which he unpacks in the following chapters. The appearance of Jesus makes it clear that he is God and that the believers are to maintain their faith in him, for he is the one to whom we will give an account to one day. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must happen very soon. He made it clear by sending his angel to his servant John, who then testified to everything that he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ. There is a hierarchy of this revelation being passed down. We, it's, it's not the revelation of John necessarily. It's not the revelation just from some angel. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him by God. So the Father handed this revelation to Jesus, whatever that looks like, I have no idea. And then Jesus handed this to the angel, and then the angel handed it to John, and John is now passing it to the, the, the seven churches. You get the remember of this word, this Greek word, angelos, means messenger. And in the first testament, it, the word that is used of angels and humans is just messenger. And all throughout the first testament in the Hebrew, 
or the Old Testament, and all through the Second Testament, the New Testament, and the Greek, the word is just messenger. It does not necessarily communicate a divine, angelic, supernatural being. Uh, when David sent his messengers to, to the king of Ammon, when he first became king to establish a treaty, it's the exact same word that is used of the messenger Gabriel, who was sent by God to Daniel. Even in the English, when it sends Angelos, uh, Gabriel, to speak to Mary, it's the same word that is used of the messenger humans that are sent by Jesus to give a message to somebody to the village that he's coming to. How do you know when it's angel and when it's just a human messenger? Context, right? Trunk, the word trunk. This is what I use with the students all the time because it has so many meanings. It could be the trunk of a car, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk of a tree, the trunk at the end of your bed, your swimming trunks. And you know what it is because of the contact. Some people have argued that this was just a simple messenger, a human that brought it, but that doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to interpret angel the way that you would naturally, because it doesn't make sense that God, that God would send it to Jesus, who would then send it some, some podunk messenger, who would then send it to John, who would then send it to the city, that the churches. It makes more sense that an angel was the mediator between Jesus and John, rather than some random human as a mediator between Jesus and John. That, that would diminish John's authority significantly. Um, and then he wouldn't really technically be the author. And then we would have to have the credentials of this messenger to know that this is truly the word of God. And, and all throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, it's always an angel mediating between God and John. It's the angel who says, eat this scroll. It's the angel who says, this is the way you understand it. So it doesn't make sense that it would be anywhere different here. So this is definitely a supernatural divine being who is coming from Jesus to John, which even though we are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit now, God still chooses to use his angels as mediators between us and him. And you're going to see this over and over again as we go through the book. This is Christ's words. These are Christ's words to the church of what he wants to reveal to them. And it begins with seven letters and then goes into an understanding of the, the events of history, however you want to see that. Now, this phrase, take place swiftly or soon, communicates sure accomplishment. Many people try to translate this as, ooh, it's going to happen soon. Everything that John is talking about is going to happen soon. And then you're like, okay, a couple of decades went by after John's death. Now we're dealing with a couple of centuries. So you're like, what about that soon? John, that's not what the phrase actually means. The phrase take place swiftly means that it will be accomplished. That it will be accomplished to its full completion in its entirety. And that's what the Greek is communicating here. It's not a chronological soon event, but rather that it's going to be accomplished in the exact way that it's been revealed. He made it clear by sending his angel to his servant John. That word servant a lot of your Bibles is not a strong enough translation for the Greek word. The Greek word here is doulos. Doulos. And this word means slave. And it is the word slave, as in I am a slave to a master or an owner. And this word communicates slavery. Now, in the ancient world, there are lots of parts of the ancient world that their slavery was nowhere as dastardly and demonic and, de and dehumanizing as it was in American history. But there were parts that it was. Don't ever estimate, humans have always treated humans poorly no matter where we are in history and wherever we are in the world. 
But in the idea of this, slavery, slavery could be a bad thing, as in somebody did take you by force and enslave you, and they mistreat you, and they dehumanize you, and all that kind of stuff. Or there were times where you were taken as a slave and you were treated well, and you were more like a bondservant. And so you could go into slavery because somebody saw you inferior and took you. You could go into slavery because you were a captor of war, um, and they took you as a prize. Or you go as a slave because you were filing bankruptcy. They didn't have bankruptcy in the ancient world. They didn't have a government that would come in and kind of clear your debt, pay off the debts that you couldn't, and then kind of give you another chance. And I know it's way more complicated and harder than that, but and just. But relatively speaking, in America, it is pretty easy to file bankruptcy and start life over, relatively speaking, compared to most countries and most of human history. I don't mean it's like easy. But in the ancient world, when you can't pay your debts, you go, you go to prison. And you go to prison, period. And, and then you, you become, or you could sell yourself to a master. And that master would provide you shelter, they would provide you clothing, they would provide you um, um, food, and they might even provide you education for your children. And then you would work off your debt. So the master would pay all your debts off, and then you would now owe the master your debt, and you would work it off. And then they would pay you like some petty cash, so to speak. So every month you would whittle your debt down a little bit more and get some petty cash. And then eventually when you worked off your debt, you could be free of your, your slavery and you would go back into your life. And, in, and then, and of course, obviously, you'd probably be a slave a little bit longer after you worked off your debt because you had to get some more money to be able to go off and be on your own and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't uncommon for slaves who bought their freedom to take slaves of themselves. And that says something when people who've been slaves are willing to take slaves that shows you that they viewed it a little bit differently. And so you would pay off. And many times your life could actually be better as a slave. Now you think about Joseph and the First Testament. He was taken to the house of Potiphar. Okay? I mean, talk about living in the good life, the bling bling. And then he even moved up, okay, and the ranks. And a lot of times they would not, they didn't just force you into manual labor like we did in American history. They would often use your talents. I mean, like, great offense to those who are slave owners in America. But how dumb do you have to be to have these slaves and never use them for their skills and talents? I mean, many of these people are brilliant. They could have been accountants. They could have been all this stuff. That's what they do. If you're a great baker, you would become the cook for the house. If you're an incredible educator, you would educate their children. If you were an incredible accountant and financer, you would take care of the finances of the master. They would use you to your skills, and so you would be doing the things that you normally did. And so, like, for me, I'm like a poor boy, okay? I've spent most of my life, like, trying to scrape by financially with my wife and I. And if I had to sell myself to slavery and Bill Gates bought us and put us up in his place, like, no, what he's going to provide for me is way better than I ever provided for my family. And so sometimes when people were able to buy their freedom, they would say, I like my master. I like the way I've been treated. I like the life that has been provided for me. It's way better than anything I could do. And then they would become a bond slave. And they would, they would get a piercing in their ear. They would take a metal thing, put their ear up against the wall, run it through, and then the, the, the master would put his marking on them. And everybody in the street would know that he had not, he had the authority of the master, but also what he thought of the master. This is what the New Testament writers are communicating when they say, I'm a slave of Christ. Meaning, I enslave myself willingly to Jesus Christ. And he is my master, and I obey him, and I belong to him. And I did this because he is a phenomenal master. 
He is a master that created the world, a master who pursued me, a master who died on the cross to save me from my sins, a master who indwells me and guides me and sanctifies me and gives me life and hope and peace and joy and all that kind of stuff. And the life that he's provided for me is way better than any life that I could have ever provided for myself before redemption. And this is the, this is the full force of what John is communicating here. I am not just some guy. I am a slave of the greatest master in the universe. And I willingly enslaved myself to him when he bought me with his own blood. And my debt is eternal now. My debt is eternal now because he gave me eternal salvation. Peter uses this phrase. James uses it in his letter. Paul even uses this in one of his letters. This is the force of what they're saying. And this is so contrary to America and the way we think. Our greatest value is my rights, what I need. And even as American Christians, this chafes us a lot, um, this idea. By sending his angel to his servant John, who then testified to everything that he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ. John says, I testify with my own word and my own credentials that what I'm giving to you is true and from God. And that's important. And you have to understand something. John, John is writing against false teachers a lot. And it's very interesting that whenever you read Peter and James and all these guys, mostly they don't ever give their credentials. When we introduce people, we always introduce them like, hey, they've got this PhD and this thing and this thing, and they've gone to this seminary and they wrote these commentaries and they went to this ministry. So here's your speaker today in chapel or church or something like that. The authors of the Bible don't ever really do that. What they do is they just say, I'm a slave of Christ. I, I am a servant, and I am testifying to this. The only time that they ever say, these are my credentials, is when they're dealing with false teachers who are arrogantly listing off their credentials and saying that they have a better understanding of Jesus. John has already done this. In First John, he begins the letter by saying, I was an apostle of Christ, and I was with him and chosen by him from the beginning. Now, why does he do that? Because these false teachers don't know who Jesus is. They didn't walk with Jesus. They weren't chosen. They're saying that Jesus is only God and not human. And John starts off by saying, I was chosen by Christ. I walked with him. And then he goes, what I have seen and what I have touched. And that's the only credentials he gives. He's mostly trying to just refute that I was there, I was chosen, I lived with them, therefore I touched them. That's why you're a false teacher. And, that's, and then he goes on with his letter. Most of the time, they're not listing their credentials except for the fact that I was chosen by Christ. I was chosen by Christ. And that's his credentials. Christ came to me and gave me this vision, and I testify that it's all true. This is also the testimony of Jesus. This word testimony just means witness. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and blessed are those who hear and obey the things written in it because the time is near. He basically says, blessed are you who read this. And read out loud means as a community, as a congregation. He's not saying that you're not allowed to read this privately and quietly in your own mind. He's just saying that these letters are not just for the individual people. These letters are for the churches and for the, the community. And most of the time, these people would stand up and they would read these out loud together as a community. And so he's saying, blessed are you who obeys it, for the time is near. From John to the seven churches that are in the providence of Asia, 
We already talked about these churches in our modern-day Turkey. Grace and peace to you from he who is and who was and who is still to come. Now, that's a different way of putting it. This is the really the only time that this phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, but we expect it to be past tense, present tense, future tense. But it starts with the present and then goes in the past and then the future. And that's the idea. Rather than, I mean, he could say, I was from the beginning into the middle into the end, and he already says that in different ways throughout the Bible. But what he's trying to emphasize to these Christians who, who are being tempted to compromise their faith with the pressures of the, the paganism around them and the Judaism around them and even the culture who wants to penalize them in their financial and their workplace and even their life um, lifestyle for, not, um, for, for being true to Christ, what he's communicating first and foremost is, I am with you now. I am with you now. I am here with you now. Because a lot of this book is going to be about things to come, especially that, because one could say like that the last two chapters are the most important. Those are still future for everybody. They're still, no matter what view you take, they're future for everybody. And so one could easily say, well, sure, you've promised all those great things in the future, right? Peter says, you have an inheritance being kept and guarded by God in heaven that will never perish, never spoil, never fade, and never rot away. And you're like, wow, that gives me a lot of hope, but I would like it now, right? Right now, life sucks. It'd be nice to have the inheritance now. It's easy to say in the future, everything will be great. And that is true. But what Jesus is emphasizing is, I am here with you now. There's this already not yet. You do have a little bit of the inheritance now. It's me in you. It's me with you. And then I've always been in the past. The author of your salvation, First Peter says. And then I will go out into the future and provide a place for you, First Peter says. And I'm, you're like, wait a minute, we're in John. And you're talking about Peter. Because they all are connecting these ideas together. They're all communicating the same ideas over and over again just with their own unique personalities and their own unique way of communicating and their life experiences. Jesus says, I have always existed. I am with you now. I was there at the very beginning. The word became flesh, and I am going to be there till the end. That is what you've invested in. The Roman Empire hasn't always been here, and it's going to fall. And you know it's going to fall because the Babylonians fell, the Persians fell, the Medes fell, the Assyrians fell, Egypt fell. Like, no, no, of them can say that. And even Caesar, who is now in power, Nero or Domitian, whatever view you take, yeah, but all the pharaohs before, or all the, the Caesars before him have died. No one can say that except for Christ. And that's what he's emphasizing. When you're tempted to sell out to the local government or the local financial guilds or working guilds or to the local Jews, and you're, you want to walk from the faith, or, or right now, today, for you, you want to sell out to the corporation that you're working for now, or the, the media industry, or the neighborhood, or the school PTA board, or whatever it is, they're not going to be around forever. And they haven't been. And people, people have risen and fallen, but I am the only thing that is constant throughout history. And that's what Christ is trying to communicate. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. There's a lot here, so let's unpack it. From the seven spirits before the throne. And the question is, what are the seven spirits? Obviously, spirit means that they are a supernatural or non-material kind of a being. 
And some people take this literally, that these are literally seven spirits, some associate with seven angels that might be standing around the throne. But most people, regardless of what view you take, most people believe that this is the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. One reason is, once again, numbers in Revelation are all symbolic. And even though there are some people who disagree with that, they would say, no, the number three and a half is not symbolic and the 1,260 days is not symbolic. Everybody pretty much agrees that the word, the number seven is symbolic. It has been <laughs> symbolic in every single book throughout all of human history uh, of the Bible. And we is later going to be used as the seven horns of Jesus, the seven eyes of Jesus. And that's not literal. It's metaphorical. And so most people take this as the Holy Spirit being seven is completion. So the total and complete spirit of God is before the throne. Why do we say that this is seven spirits? This phrase shows up in four locations in Revelation, the seven spirits. It shows up here in verse 1-4. It shows up again in Revelation 3-1. It shows up again in Revelation 4-5, and then again in 4-6. And we'll see those as we go. So 1-4, 3-1, 4-5, 5-6. It shows up in those four places. Three of these, Revelation 3, 1, 4, 5, 5, 6. 3, 1, 4, 5, 5, 6. It is specifically said to be the seven spirits of God, meaning it belongs to God. It's owned by God. In three other places, Revelation 1, 4, 4, 5, 5, 6. 1, 4, 4, 5, 5, 6. It specifically says before the throne of God. Before the throne of God. In three of these, in Revelation 1, 4, 4, 5, and 5, 6, 1, 4, 4, 5, and 5, 6, it specifically places the seven spirits with Yahweh and Jesus. Right there with the, in the midst of the other two. Now that itself is it. So you've got spirits that belong to God, they're before the throne of God, and they're put right in the midst of the other two members of the Trinity. It gives great strength to the fact that this is the Holy Spirit, and the fact that seven is a number of completion. The other thing that is important here is the seven spirits are equated with the seven torches of fire before, burning before Yahweh's throne. Fire in Revelation is always connected to Yahweh. It's always connected to Yahweh. So it's, we're told later in 4-5, Revelation 4-5, that the seven spirits are also the seven torches, the seven fire torches of God in 4-5. We're also told that the seven eyes of the Lamb in chapter 5-6 is also the seven spirits of God. Now that's your strongest argument. If the seven eyes of Jesus is the same thing, it says, which are the seven spirits of God, that's a strong argument that we're talking about something that's the same thing as Jesus. It does not make sense that Jesus' seven metaphorical eyes are seven angels. It makes more sense that Jesus' seven metaphorical eyes is the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father are equated as the same thing. Jesus is never equated with an angel. In fact, the author of Hebrews spends two whole chapters arguing why Jesus is not even connected to angels or associated with angels or an angel in any kind of a way. And so this is one that, so when you put all this together, together, it becomes very powerful that we're talking about the Holy Spirits. The one spirit is symbolized by two elements. So 
we are told that it's seven torches and seven eyes. The seven eyes of God and the seven flames of the seven torches of God. All connected to Jesus, which makes a strong argument that this is one thing. The seven torches might also reflect the throne, the fire of God in Ezekiel 1.13. We see these eyes and these torches in one other place in the First Testament. In um, Zechariah 4, verse 2 and 10, Zechariah 4, verse 2 and 10, we are told that there are the seven eyes and the seven torches of God. And God sends his seven eyes and his seven torches out to roam the earth. To roam the earth and be aware of what's going on and to judge and bring justice and all that kind of stuff. That's the only other time we see seven spirits and the seven, or seven eyes and the seven torches is in, in Zechariah chapter 4. Then we get to the Revelation and we're told that the seven eyes and the seven torches are the same thing again. But then we're also told that they are also the seven spirits of God. So between Zechariah 4 and Revelation 1 and 4 and 3 and 5, and the fact that it's said to be the same thing as Jesus' eyes, and it stands in the midst of the other two members of the Trinity, and it's before the throne, all, all the evidence, you start putting all the puzzles, the piece, pieces of the puzzle together, and it becomes clear that this is the Holy Spirit. It becomes clear that this is the Holy Spirit. And so the divine fullness of the Holy Spirit of Yahweh that covers the entire earth. This is what the seven means. It's the Holy Spirit. But what God is trying to communicate more foremost than anything is not like, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit's also there. But the fullness of all of God's divinity and spirit covers the entire earth as the eyes of the Spirit see everything the torches rule over everything, and they go out into the world to roam and see everything. There is no place that is unseen or untouched or unruled by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is the Holy Spirit associated with that? Why not Jesus or the Father? Because the Father is in heaven on the throne, and Jesus came to earth in order to die for us, but went back. And in John chapter 14, he said, I must depart from you, but I will send another, the paraclete, the one who will go with you until I return. So this, it, is, it was the Father's job to create and rule. It's Jesus' job in order to die and redeem us and come back and rule. But right now it's the Spirit's job to be on earth with us, guiding us. And so this is why it's specifically associated with the Holy Spirit. And so it's clear here that we're talking about the Holy Spirit and not just some seven angels. Some people connect this to Isaiah chapter 11 too, where we're told that there are seven spirits of God and we're told that it's the spirit of gentleness, the spirit of justice, the spirit of this. And some people are like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is there's only six there. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, there's only six things listed. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that adds the seventh gentleness. So that wasn't even the original Hebrew. And it's not likely John is referring to the Greek and not the Hebrew. And those are seven character traits that could, that could apply to anybody. And so, yes, it could be that Isaiah is talking about the Holy Spirit, but that's not a strong enough argument like Zechariah 4 and the seven spirits of Jesus also being the seven eyes. Um, and so in this sense, it's a trinity. This is the Holy Spirit. There's an unusual order. Usually we're used to saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the order is not that order listed here. 
And it might be because the order is associated with the throne room in chapter 4. When we get to the throne room, we're going to be shown that it's, the, it's, it's a different order because it's an order of what, how we meet as we come to the throne, as we encounter. Not everything always has to be the order that we're used to, was and is and to come and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The authors often mix things up a lot. Jesus described as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. This word faithful is used mostly of God and Jesus. All throughout the Bible and in Revelation is constant use of God and Jesus because they're the only two that are really actually faithful in all of creation in any kind of a sense. And the faithful witness is the testimony, um, the words that are being described, the things that he's testified to as far as he's seen, what he knows, what he's communicating. And so he is faithful and true, unlike any of these other revelations from other people. Then we're told that he's the firstborn from among the dead. First Peter tells us that Christ is the first fruits from the grave and we are to follow. And what this phrase is making it very clear is that remember, Christianity and Judaism are the only two religions that value the human body. In most religions, the human body dies and what happens on earth stays on earth. And the spirit goes off to something else to either just your body becomes worm food and then you cease to exist if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or if you're a Hindu or a misreligion or something like that, your spirit goes off and becomes some godlike being, and then your body just becomes worm food too. Only in Christianity does it value the body in Judaism because of the resurrection of Christ. And so what God is, what he's making clear here is that we Christ is the only one who can resurrect your body. Christ is the only one who defeated the grave, defeated the devil, defeated death, and he's the only one who can bring your body back. He's the only one that can give you a true, complete, holistic life for all eternity. If he's also then, not only that, not only is he the first from the grave, which means he's the only the first one and the only one who's done it for you, but the fact that he's the first implies that there's more to follow, which means we can now trust that we will be resurrected because we've seen that he has been resurrected. And even the Jews who killed him and didn't believe in him believed that his body, he, he was resurrected somehow. I mean, they, they try to cover up the tomb. They try to, they talk about a resurrection even as well. What it's saying is he is the first, the only one who can do it for us, the only one who has done it for us, but we are also more to follow, and that is us. In addition to this, firstborn is an actual title too. Not only is he coming alive from the dead in a very literal way, but it's unique that he's called the firstborn from the dead. You don't think of people being born from the dead or born into a resurrection. This firstborn is actually a title that goes back to the First Testament. So when the father would die, he would give the firstborn title to his firstborn son, the biological firstborn son. And this title carried with it a double inheritance, double portion of the inheritance compared to all the other sons, but most importantly, headship, that he would become the next head of the family or the head of the tribe, carried with it authority and responsibility over a people group or a family. But it doesn't communicate that Jesus is biologically born in any kind of way because sometimes the father would give it to another son or maybe even an adopted son as the firstborn. So when we get to Abraham, he has no sons. And he tells God in chapter 15 of Genesis that 
there's a servant in his household that's going to get the firstborn title from him because he has no son to give it to. So this servant isn't a biologically born to Abraham in any kind of way, but he's going to get the title if Abram doesn't have any sons. In addition, Isaac then gets the firstborn title from Abraham, but Isaac wasn't the biological firstborn son. He was the second. Ishmael was the first. So the title went to the secondborn. And the same thing with Jacob. So Isaac had two kids. Esau was the first, and then Jacob. But then God said, give the firstborn title to Jacob, and he would become the head of everything. Then Jacob had 12 sons. The fourth son was Judah, and God gave the firstborn title to Judah. So all these examples make it very clear that this, first, this title, firstborn, does not communicate birth or biological descendancy in any kind of way. It communicates title of headship and power over a group of people. Not only is Jesus the first from the grave as the first living resurrection, but he's also the firstborn, meaning the first and highest authority over the church and over the world and all those who will follow his resurrection and their own resurrection. He is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Later we're going to be seeing in chapter 19, Jesus will show up and he'll say he has a name called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And basically it just means he's the king above all other kings and he's the Lord above all other lords. But this phrase is not unique to Christ. This phrase was used by the Persians, it was used by the Greeks and the Romans, and when Caesar came into power, he would declare himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the, 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 the Prince of Peace, the Savior of all mankind, the Most High. You're like, wait a minute, aren't those all biblical titles for Jesus and God? No, they're not. They were used of the emperors and the rulers all throughout human history. Here's what you have to understand. In the Gospels, it begins, especially Luke, and when Julius, when I'm sorry, when Caesar Augustus was Caesar, a child was born in Bethlehem. That's not the exact same phrase, but that's the idea. Okay, you're told historically. Now, what's unique about this is no other religious book gives you historical rootings in places and time like the Bible does. You might think. Oh, all these boring names and boring locations. I don't know where any of this stuff is. I'm not an archaeologist. That kind of stuff. Why do I need to know this? Well, one of it is, it is one of the major reasons that we know our word is rooted in history and time and events and why we have very good reliability and trustworthiness that this is true. Without those names, we would not be as um, confident as we are. But the other reason is this. When Caesar would come into power, he would make a big deal about his enthronement. They usually would take on a new name as they took the throne. They would throw huge celebrations throughout the Roman Empire. They would roll out the best. They would pass out bread and food to everybody. And everybody like, okay, yeah, you just will do this when you come into power. Gas prices only go low when it's time for an election kind of thing, right? And you're like, of course, they just want me to vote for them because they're bringing it down. And they go right back after election. We, we know the party tricks, right? It doesn't matter what party you're in. They've had the same tricks. And so we, that's the way they think. So the Caesar would come to power, and he would declare himself the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of all mankind, the Prince of Peace. But everybody in the Roman Empire would say, whatever. Just another oppressive, power-hungry person that's going to put their boot on my neck 
and make my life difficult. Nothing's going to change. Maybe he'll kill a few more people than the other person did or a few less, but it's still the same oppressive power. But when you go back in the prophecies of Jesus, specifically the two first prophecies ever, Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12, we are told that this king that is going to come one day is going to be a king who will tie his donkey to the grapevine. You're like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, my life's all better now. Donkeys were a symbol of kingships, and the vine or the grapes were a symbol of the abundance of life and joy to the fullest. So he's tying his kingship to joy. Then we're told that he will wash his garments in wine. He will be clothed with joy. He will be clothed with compassion. His eyes are darker than wine. His character is going to be filled with joy and peace and hope. His teeth are whiter than milk, meaning that the words milk was an aphrodisiac in the ancient world. It was like, if you ever had real milk from a cow, it's, pretty, it's way sweeter than our 80% water milk from the grocery store, and it is 80%. And, and they didn't have chocolates and sweets and sugar and Halloween. They just, they just had natural sweets. That was considered very sweet to them. It was considered a luxury. It's kind of like back in the day, you get oranges in your stockings for Christmas. You're like, yes! And that's what it was for them. It was sweet. It was, and the milk was life. And so it means his words will be full of life. And then when you get to Numbers, it talks about Numbers chapter 24, verses 17, um, 9 through 17, 17 through 22, somewhere around the 17. It talks about he's going to crush the enemies and bring ultimate victory for all people, not just the elite and those who are in power, but for all people. He's going to be peace for even his subjects, even his people. So when you put that together, there's no ruler, no dictator, no oligarchy, no president, nobody who has ever been filled with joy. And everything they speak brings life and joy to everybody and truly brings peace for all people that follow them, part of their subjects. When the shepherds are in the fields and the angels, which are called the heavenly hosts, and the word host is military. So when the military of God shows up and they say to you, your king has been born and peace on earth to those who belong to him. That wouldn't have been up just another king, just like all the other ones. That is stock full of tons of things throughout the first testament that do not match up with any other king or emperor that has ever ruled and the idea is caesar has become king and nothing has changed but in the days of this earthly king that has been one after another after another and he will fall and nothing has changed a new kind of king is on the scene and he will be unlike anything that you've ever seen He is going to start just like you did, poor as a baby and helpless. But when he rises into power, he will not forget his roots. And he will truly bring to you what you would hope that every other king would have brought. And that is the promise. So when he says he is the king of kings, he means that in a completely different non-Caesar, every other ruler kind of a way. Because now John can also say, see, he walked it and he lived it and he died for you. Who else did that? Who else did that? 
And this is what he means by this terminology. And he will go on and he will make that clear. Once again, not only does he have all the First Testament to back him up that this King of Kings of all the earth is different, but the one who loves us. How many of our presidents actually love us? How many of the kings throughout human history love their people? Right? There were few that cared about their people and wanted to do good things for them, but you, they stayed in power long enough and eventually they had to play the game of politics and eventually they just stopped caring, right? But this is the one who has already come through the ranks, is ruling on the throne right now, has been ruling on the throne for a while, and he still loves you. He set you free. He set you free from the bondage of sin and death from our sins, and that by the cost of his own blood. How many other rulers sacrificed their life for you? Right? Truly, and not just sacrificed their life for you like they're willing to jump in front of the road and pull you off the bike and they accidentally died in the process, knowing that it could happen but hoping that it wouldn't, but literally threw themselves into the grave knowing it would kill them, wanting to be killed so they just don't save you for another few years but for all eternal life. And then come back and indwell you to give you peace and hope and life to the fullest. He has been appointed to us a kingdom as priests serving as God and Father. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is, what he's, this is how he's introducing him. This is who gave us this revelation. Every Caesar would come into power and they would give an edict. And most of the words would be empty. Like, I'm going to bring hope. I'm going to be changed. I'm going to make things great again. Okay, right? I'm going to say the environment. Okay, all these different things. They all make these promises and they're all empty. And yeah, they're able to make good to a certain extent if they actually will. But still, their powers are limited and their altruism is also limited. But this one has actually done it. This one's actually done it. So he has appointed us as a kingdom of priests serving his God and Father, to him be the glory. Now this kingdom of priests goes back to Exodus chapter 6. Sorry, 19. 3 through 6. In Exodus chapter 19, God brings Israel to Mount Sinai, and he literally verbally speaks to the entire nation. And he says, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt and saved you and lifted you up on eagles' wings and lifted you and brought you here safely. No other Pharaoh has ever done that. No other God has ever done that, which makes the golden calf that much more insulting. I'm the one that lifted you up. Now, if you obey me, I, if you obey me, the Mosaic Covenant, I will make you a kingdom of priests. You will have the right to represent me before the world and make me known to the world and bring people to me. What a great privilege that is. You will be a holy nation, a unique nation. Holy means unique and unlike anything else. Why will you be unique? Not because you are that unique and that great in yourself, but because I will make you unique and I will use you in a unique way. And you will be my special possession. But Israel didn't obey. Forty days later, they went into the golden calf. And when they worshipped the golden calf, they lost the right to be priests. And the only people who got to continue to be the priests were the Levites because they're the only ones that didn't do the golden calf. Because they were Moses' family. But then eventually when we get the book of Judges, the priests screw this all up too and they're all corrupt. 
And Israel lost that right because they were disobedient. So then Peter comes along in chapter 2, and he says, Christ is the living stone who was sacrificed for you and laid as the foundation for a new house, a new temple, a new people group. And you are his special possession, a holy people, not nation, because we're not a nation anymore. That's Israel. We're a people group. And you are a kingdom of priests. But what's different in Peter is there is no if you obey, then you will be this. He says, Christ died for you. So now you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a special possession. Nothing you can do can make you lose that right. And so we have, we have been given the privilege to be rulers and priests. Rulers subdue the evil and bring peace. And priests make your master known to people and bring people into a relationship with your master so that they can experience that being a slave of Christ is way better than any mastery of their own life could ever provide for them. And the benefits far outweigh any benefits that they could provide. No matter how wealthy of a celebrity you are or how powerful of a politician you are or how well-connected of a salesman that you are or a Wall Street guy is, there's no life that you can get, bring yourself that will get you anywhere close to what Christ has provided you. And so John begins by saying, this is who Christ is. This is where he's been and where he's going, unlike everybody else. This is what he has promised us. This is what he's proven to be reliable through his character on the cross. And this is what he's actually made us right now. And then I'm going to get into how we will actually achieve it to the fullest at the very end of the chapters. All your temptations to sell out to your employer or your guild or to, to have money for your family or whatever that is, I get that temptation. I get the desire to protect your family and to keep them from harm and then to protect yourself and keep your harm and provide a good life for them. But the American dream can only provide so much compared to what Christ has provided. And if you sell out to your corporation or your neighborhood people or your hobbies or your guilds or your groups or whatever, for the sake of just having the easy life here and not being ridiculed or mocked or losing any kind of thing, then you're missing out on this. You're missing out on this. This is how John begins the letter. This is how John begins the letter. There is no other figure in all of human history. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The word glory actually communicates heaviness. Like, dude, that is so heavy, right? That it communicates this is heavy. He is heavy. His weight is heavy. And when he throws it around, it's not for his own gain. It's for us. And this is why we can offer glory to him. Think about it. When you see a really cool movie, what do you go do? Or you find a really awesome recipe. What do you do? You make it and you tell everybody about it, right? I just saw this movie. you got to see it. What has that movie done for you compared to Christ? And yet we have a hard time saying, oh, I want to tell everybody about Christ because if I do, I might lose my job. Or I might not get promoted. Or I might be made fun of or that. And don't get me wrong, I get it. There are fewer consequences for you sharing a movie that people don't like. But at the same time, like you get super excited about a movie, why not this? And this is for me too. Okay. To his is the glory 
and power forever. Amen. What does amen mean? True that. Basically means truly, truly this is true.